Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, in space, no one can hear you bomb. This is Chronicles of Riddick. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Chronicles of Riddick, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you? You know, I think sometimes people hear podcaster and they think, oh man, these guys, they've made it. They have it all. They're living the life. But I just want people to know that we have struggles, Mm -hmm. just like regular non-casting humans. And so I'm always struggling a little bit. But you know what? I perk up when it's pod night and I come into the studio and now I'm feeling good. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, I, I've been having some issues of my own. My, my roof is leaking. Oh, no. There's stuff going on in my life like that. But you got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, are you a podcaster or a non-caster? And <laughs> right. I said, I'm a podcaster. My place is at your side, dear Ian. That's a quote <laughs> from Chronicles of Riddick. I just changed the word husband to Ian. So I said, you know what? It's time to put all that aside, get in the studio. Let's knock one out. Chronicles of Riddick. I'm excited. Our first Vin Diesel movie. Wow. Can't wait to dig into this. But uh, yeah, before we get into that, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about some stuff we watched. What did you check yes. out this week that you wanted to talk about? In these times of struggle and strife and- uh, Mother Mary comes to you? Something else came to me too. It's a cute little show. It's called Reservation Dogs. It's a brand new comedy series. There's five episodes of it out as of the time of this recording. I've watched all five because I really like it. The show is exclusively via FX on Hulu. So what that means is yes. you may or may not get it. I don't know why I have it, but I get it. And I'm glad. It's this really cool comedy. It's about the struggles of a friend group of these four indigenous teenagers in rural Oklahoma. It's a light comedy that's really funny, but it's also this group of characters that I just right away fell in love with them and it has its serious themes and has some moments that are actually really moving. And uh, it's just super interesting because it's in a unique setting that I haven't been exposed to before, life on the reservation. And it made me feel feelings, which is, of course, my number one gold standard. And also made me feel better. It makes me feel good when I watch the show. Better than anything I've watched in a while. And I realized I don't have to always watch dark, creepy shit or gory superheroes exploding each other into sprays of blood. Like sometimes I can watch something that's wholesome and fun. Hey, well, the season's not done yet, right? We don't know where it's going to go. It could end up there. (laughs) Yeah, the whole crew could blow up in a splatter of blood and guts at the end. I'm only two episodes in, but yeah, I'm digging it as well. Really enjoying that show. It's Taika Waititi, I think, had a hand in creating it. So I've been a fan of most of his stuff. Yeah, he's the co-creator along with Sterling Harjo, who I don't know, but who is a Native American filmmaker. So it's grounded in this place that I don't know anything about, but it feels really real and interesting for that reason. It's telling how much a unique setting can really draw you into a show, just learning about a world that hasn't been explored, at least in the media you've consumed prior to it. So that's definitely in the plus column for that. But from Reservation Dogs to Hero Dogs for Children, most of my 
free time. I've been playing a lot of Overwatch lately, so I've been falling behind on my extracurricular movie watching time. Oh, but I've seen the Paw Patrol movie, which just came out many oh. times because I have small children <laughs> and they say, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol. So <laughs> I've watched that movie like five times. And honestly, it's kind of okay. If you have little kids, yeah. I would say that you could do a lot worse. Some big names, bigger than you would see in the TV show. I know Tyler Perry has a role in there, Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, okay. There's all these kind of notable voice actors making appearances in there. And it's not often we get on here and talk about children's movies. No. But I thought I would throw that out there that I'm not a fan of the Paw Patrol series. I find it difficult to follow and okay. just a little too all over the place, but the movie, not that bad. So they've elevated it in the movie. Yeah, they really stepped their game up for this one. It tells it tells a real story and has, has a message that I thought was good. So yeah, check out the Paw Patrol movie if you got little ones or if you just like G-rated cinema, which is kind of weird, but whatever. <laughs> it's not my place to judge you. Yeah. Aside from that, Chronicles of Riddick. Ian, I gotta know, what was your history with this movie if you had any? We'll throw Pitch Black into the mix there too. Any kind of memories you have about those two movies when they came out? What did you think about them? What did you hear about them? And were you interested? I heard good things about Pitch Black back in the day. I caught the vibe of what people were saying about it, that it was cool and people were appreciating it as sci-fi with some hip style and flavor to it. And I somehow never got around to seeing it. So I hadn't seen either one. And then in preparation for the show, I started with Pitch Black because I'm like, oh, I should ground myself and know what I'm getting into. And then after I did that, we'll get into it in the show. I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have seen the first one. Like it made it harder to get into Chronicles of Riddick because I spent the first 20 minutes going, well, this doesn't look like the sequel to Pitch Black. What's going on here? Right. It feels more like a sneak attack of Vin Diesel's sci-fi space opera that he always wanted to make, just reverse engineer it into the Pitch Black universe because he already had a proven, I don't even want to call it a hit. It was like a cult hit, but he had a movie he thought people would watch. He was like, I can make this grand space opera I always wanted to and just retrofit it into the Pitch Black universe. And they do not fit. They are not of a piece together. These two movies are wildly different. I vividly remember renting Pitch Black on DVD from West Coast Video with a group of friends and watching it in somebody's parents' basement or whatever. And we all thought it was really cool. It's kind of a gritty, mid-budget, down and dirty sci-fi where it's trying to tell a pretty grounded story. Like you could replace the aliens with just some kind of killers. It could be like a Purge movie almost and it would still work just as well. And then compare that to this movie, which is just so over the top and it's attempted world building. I saw a lot of people make the comparison of if Pitch Black is alien, Chronicles of Riddick is aliens. And I guess like, no, I don't even think so. It would be like if Pitch Black was alien and then aliens was Dune. They're trying to tell that level of story with exposition and world building and secret societies and all this extra stuff that really had no place in the original movie. Yeah. And not just sci-fi, but it goes over into that quasi-religious stuff, right? Where the bad guys are chasing some kind of promised land nirvana where they will be spiritually transported into an afterlife kind of thing. It's on the far end of fantasy sci-fi, whereas Pitch Black was partially for reasons of its low budget. It's like working class people operating space shipping and pilots following the rules that the corporation sets. It was all that kind of milieu. And there's like, that stuff is just gone in this movie. It's just like, wee, there's fantasy conquerors of the universe and they're half alive. And we'll have fun talking through all of it because it's a bunch of dopey stuff. And some of it actually works. That's the thing about both these movies. They have a dumbness and then they have an attitude that sometimes pokes through and wins you back over just when you think it's getting too dumb. Yeah. Something I felt about a lot of sci-fi movies that take themselves really seriously is that they can go too far and just be really goofy 
if you try too hard to be serious and important. Yeah. But Pitch Black, it was not a Riddick movie. You know, Riddick was a character in the movie. He was the breakout character to be sure, but it, it was more of an ensemble. And somewhere yeah. along the way, I don't know if you know this about Vin Diesel, bit of an ego. If you've read any of the behind the scenes information about the Fast and the Furious movies, particularly his dealings with Dwayne Johnson, he's got a little bit of main character syndrome. So Riddick was undoubtedly the breakout character of Pitch Black. I don't think anyone would argue otherwise, but it wasn't a Riddick movie. Would you agree with that? It's hard for me to say because I came in after. So I was watching a Riddick movie, whether the movie was going to be that or not. But yeah, I guess if it wasn't intended to be his movie, he does kind of steal the show. And he's the fun character. He's the action hero who saves them. And he gets a lot of action hero lines and snarky comebacks and cooler than thou attitude and all the stuff that he learned from watching the action heroes of the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. And he tries to inhabit all that. And he actually somehow pulls it off as much of a weird place that Finn Diesel lives in of almost being able to take him seriously, but also him being self-parody at most times. It also just kind of works to see him on screen. Even if you kind of go in dubious, I didn't go in wanting to hate him. I haven't seen him in much, but I was like, okay, I'm going to get the Vin Diesel show. And yet he still got off some lines where I chuckled. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. I think it's interesting to look at his career because at this point in his career, he was still trying. I think now he's been reduced to this wooden, like he's 50 years old. He gets more and more gnome-like as the years go on. I feel like his ears grow and his head shrinks. And, you know, but like here he was still a very much a physical presence and he's charismatic enough to carry a, a role like this so much. He, he doesn't allow his characters to have any ounce of vulnerability. And I think that always hurts the movies that he's the star of. You know, he has to be the ultimate badass in every scenario and he has to win every fight. And there's just no vulnerability to it. There's no challenge. You never feel like he's in danger because you're like, well, Vin Diesel wouldn't let his character get hurt. So why should I worry about Riddick getting hurt? It's a good observation. I mean, I didn't think of it in those terms until you said that, but like people step out of his way, like scenes in this movie, especially where he should be crushed and rolled over and humiliated and brought to the brink of death by an overwhelming army. People sort of step aside for him and bow to him. Like when he's in the throne room of the enemy army and there is zero threat that anyone's going to fuck him up. Yeah. How many times do we need to see him beat up seven guys single-handedly? We're like, all right, we get it. He can beat guys up real good, but there's got to be more to a movie than that. And the stuff they try to add to it to make it more than that is just, oh, there's a prophecy. Of course there is, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. Prophecies are just, man, if you're going to throw a prophecy in your movie, you better make it special and good. This is just the most stock prophecy. They just bought it off off a of Fiverr or whatever. Someone write us a quick prophecy and we're going to sh shove it in our movie. Yeah, this is the AliExpress prophecy uh, <laughs> show. Do you want me to talk about the movie? You want me to give yeah. it the rundown of where yeah, it came let's from? let's figure out how this thing happened. All right, so... In the year 2000, before he ever talked about family with a corona in his hand, Vin Diesel starred as anti-hero Richard B. Riddick in the mid-budget sci-fi thriller Pitch Black. Diesel had garnered some attention for his supporting turns in Saving Private Ryan and Boiler Room, not to mention providing his voice to the titular role in beloved cult classic and future episode Iron Giant. Pitch Black was his first starring vehicle, and his first broken down space vehicle. And while it was only a modest success in theaters, the film got him some positive buzz and became popular on home video. His next role is Dominic Toretto in 2001's surprise smash hit point break ripoff The Fast and the Furious would set his career on another trajectory, but Diesel was still fond of his first starring vehicle and turned down the chance to reprise his role as Toretto in the sequel in order to star as Extreme Sports Spy. 
Xander Cage in Triple X, and also return as Riddick in the ambitious follow-up to Pitch Black, which would eventually be titled The Chronic. What? The Chronic. What? The Chronicles of Riddick. With Triple X and The Fast and the Furious both being box office successes, Diesel had some weight to throw around and secured a nine-figure budget, reported to be in the $120 million range for Chronicles. Keep in mind, the original cost $23 million and only made $53.2 million at the worldwide box office. Diesel reunited with Pitch Black director David Toohey, and the two ironed out a highly ambitious sci-fi fantasy story that would flesh out Riddick's backstory and the world around him. He's a hard man with an incredibly fleshy backstory. Filmed between June and October of 2003 in British Columbia, the movie would be released on June 11, 2004, to disastrous reviews and was dead on arrival at the box office, earning a worldwide take of just $115.8 million. Oh no, all was lost for the franchise. All was not lost for the franchise, though, as the movie would develop quite a cult following after its release on DVD, particularly the director's cut that was released in November of 2004, and eventually got a third entry in the series, creatively titled Riddick, that had a much smaller budget of $38 million and made just under $100 million. Congratulations to uh, bringing it home in the, in the third period. What is my analogy here? Suddenly making a hockey analogy. But yeah, I think you were going hockey there, <laughs> which I wasn't sure about. Yeah, this is the one they messed up. Yeah. It's a story of riches to rags to riches, I guess. Yeah, I think that's apt. But this movie has fans, man. Every time we put a tweet out or something talking about movies that bombed at the box office that people actually love, Chronicles of Riddick comes up time and again. This movie has fans. People really enjoy this character and this film particularly. I can see that. On subsequent rewatches, I always get closer to the movie and always feel more warmly towards it. And I could feel where you could creep over if you get into its vibe, if you decide that you're going to accept the more far out aspects of the world building and the mythology, then it's just a bunch of action and it looks kind of cool. It's like a dude movie for dudes. And if you feel like being that dude that night, you can dig it. They do keep changing the setting of the movie, which I think works in its favor. It doesn't stay in one place too long. It almost feels like a video game, which we can talk about a little bit later, where it's like there's levels, you know? Yeah. There's the opening level. There's the necromongers invading level. There's the prison level. There's all these little sections of the movie, and they feel like short stories in a good yeah. way, I think. It helps the movie keep its momentum. Yeah, it does a lot of mature, sophisticated things as a movie. Maybe sophisticated is too far, but it does things that a movie should do. It's not a dumb movie made by people who like don't get movies. That's not how it fails at all. It just fails in being a little too grandiose, a little too self-serious, and overwrought. But once you're okay with that, like, I don't know. It's kind of fun. Even though it's dumb, like, why am I in a gloomy, candlelit room with Judy Dench and Vin Diesel talking about mysterious prophecies? I don't know, but it kind of looks cool. And then some fights break out. Judy Dench and Vin Diesel, romance in the air, maybe? I, I, don't, <laughs> I can't say. We'll have to parse that out a little later. But do you want to talk about the story? Such as it is, it's quite a story. <laughs> yeah, let's jump in and try to tell this story. All right. So, an evil army of necromongers is on a religious crusade, conquering planets and converting innocent people into more soldiers. Meanwhile, our hero, wanted criminal Richard B. Riddick, is hiding out on a remote frozen planet when he's found by a bounty hunter named Tombs. Riddick defeats Tombs and his mercs and heads to the planet Helion Prime to find out who hired them. It turns out his old friend Imam revealed Riddick's location to an air elemental named Arion, and the two of them used the mercs to lure Riddick out of hiding because he's secretly the last of a powerful race called Furians and they need his help to save the universe. Suddenly, the necromongers attack Helion Prime, conquer the planet, and kill Imam. 
Necromonger leader Lord Marshall demands the survivors join his army, but Riddick says no. Riddick escapes from the Necros only to be captured by Tombs and his new team of mercs. I just love that in this movie where people have names like Necromongers and Arion and the Furians, then our hero's name is Richard. It's so fucking goofy. I don't think they actually say Richard in this movie, but they say it in Pitch Black and they say it in Riddick. Yeah. Riddick, cool name. Richard B. Riddick sounds like a fucking senator from New Hampshire. Like Dick Riddick. Good old. Yeah. Which way is Dick Riddick going to vote on the big infrastructure bill? No one knows. But uh, starts the movie off looking like a young Chris Kringle, Vin Diesel does. You can't even tell it's him. So much yeah. of his identity is tied up in his bald, naked face. That's true. And his tank top. And like those don't get revealed yeah. until the whole next uh, section of the film. So yeah, like, who's this guy? Wait a minute. He's got some dark goggle things on. I was getting very much Kurt Russell thing vibes from him in this first section. Mm-hmm. No, I'm going sexy Santa Claus. That's fair. I'm looking like a hot young Saint Nick. But anyway, he looks very strange with long hair and a beard. He looks nothing like Vin Diesel. But again, this is not bad. This is classic sequel stuff. You have a hero that you know, and then you meet him. And boy, time must have passed. Circumstances must have changed because look how different he is. But he's back in his old trouble getting hunted by mercs. Yeah, nothing in this section struck me as bad. I thought it was fun watching him waste these underprepared mercs. He gets some corny lines, you know, but good hero lines. Like His dialogue would have felt that place in the late 80s, early 90s in this movie. Yeah, you can just feel the whole history of the giants of action heroism, whose shoulders he's standing on to deliver quips and admonish the bad guy about the mistakes he made and all this speech making, which if you weren't into that, you could get turned off by this movie real quick and be like, I can't take this shit. But like you and I, I guess we get it. We get where it's coming from. And once you're okay with it, it's kind of fun. Yeah. None of this turns me off on a movie. I'm a fan of sci-fi. I'm a fan of fantasy. And I think this movie is trying to walk a really hard line, though, between being kind of hard sci-fi and and this high fantasy. And we can talk more about that in the middle section where I feel like the two worlds really collide and it feels like a separate movie completely. It flips back and forth because we didn't mention that the movie starts with, to me, the main reason that they hired Judy Dench was so that she would have an excuse to do the intro narration, right? So they did a full-on Lord of the Rings style speech with some really corny lines. It's Judy Dench narrating over some scenes of space turmoil. She's like, in other times, evil would be fought by good, but in times like these, well, it should be fought by another kind of evil. Yeah, Riddick doesn't do a single evil thing in this movie. He is a straight (laughs) up hero. I think she means Riddick. Yeah, like Riddick is the evil that's got to fight the evil because it wouldn't make sense any other way. But he's never been evil. He's intimidating. Yes, let's give him that. That's his whole shtick is just scaring the shit out of people for just being way too cool for the situation. But as far as we've seen, he only helps people. And in the first movie, we find out he's an escaped convict. So like, oh, he must have some crime in his past. But he makes these allusions to, you know, well, they had it coming and you should have seen why I had to do the things I had to do. Everything is excused. He's not an evil person, except in everyone else's mind. Right. In the first movie, just based on the way he interacts with the other characters and some of his dialogue, you could maybe stretch it to anti-hero, but not in this one. He's a straight up hero in this movie. Everything he does is is relatively noble. The, The people he kills have it coming. He never leaves an innocent person behind. He's not a complicated character. He's a straight up hero. And I wish the movie had tried harder to maybe give him more complexity and make him a true anti-hero or drop the whole subtext about, oh, well, he's really a bad guy, but he's got to fight these other bad guys because they're worse. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that just didn't make sense. Like even when he's attacked by some of the soldiers of Helion Prime who are not really his enemies, but they're after 
after him. They think he's some kind of spy and he, he fucks them all up, but he's careful not to kill anyone. This whole bunch of soldiers that are shooting to kill at him, he carefully disables them without actually killing anyone. Puts out the candles with his fingers like fucking MacGruber. <laughs> It's such an 80s action movie yeah. with just way too much money. And the Necromongers, they're just the Catholic Church, right? That's a good, <laughs> like, that's a good theory. They travel around forcing people to convert. And if you don't convert, they'll kill you. Like it's the Spanish Inquisition and shit. It is kind of that. It's a classic religious crusade. And there's this weird moment where the Necromongers are this clearly evil conquerors. They come in and they just fucking destroy your planet. And they tell the story. They've been doing this to planets up and down the galaxy. And they're totally ruthless killers. And they come in, they kill most of the planet. They bring, I don't know, 25, 50 people into this throne room. And then they start making this hard sell on them, like giving a sermon and pleading about, guys, it's so good to become a necromonger. You're going to live without pain. You're going to be without fear. We're going to bring people together. And their high priest, the purifier is like, everybody, listen, it was hard for me too. You know, when I first got converted, I thought it was going to be tough, but man, is it good? Like he's like begging for these people to come join his church. And I don't know, it just feels kind of weak for the unstoppable conquerors to be like begging for converts. We get casual Fridays. We got donuts in the break room. <laughs> he's like, look how happy everyone looks. And then it cuts to Carl Urban. He's just standing there with a scowl on his face. He scowls hard. Bags around his eyes. Just, yeah, it's pretty good. Nobody seems happy to be a necromonger. They and, don't look good. I mean, I guess they're just like a death cult. Yeah, it doesn't look fun. They look real sickly. They're pale. They got dark black circles under their eyes and they got buttholes on their necks. That's the unfortunate thing. If you told they, me like the necromongers were just played by Slipknot, I'd be like, okay, I believe you. <laughs> they walk around with knives in their back for no reason. <laughs> yes. Just weaponry stuffed in their body. They went all out on this part. The, the necromonger theme, what do you call it? So the, their main Motif? flagship, yeah, the main motif of them artistically is this big head with faces going all the way around it. And it's the top of their big spaceship, the flagship of their fleet. And it's the actual helmet of the head necromonger, the Lord Marshal. And I think they cast this guy just because he looks like the helmet they made. Like the, the helmet yeah. slides up the front face and like, oh, it's the same guy. Are, we, are you talking about a noted character actor, Comfiore? I believe he's Italian. Oh, yes. Um, I have heard of this man, Comfiore. Their big <laughs> ships reminded me of nothing more than space balls when they have a giant vacuum cleaner in the maid that sucks up all the oxygen from the Earth's planet. It's just weird having a spaceship look like a person. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It, I know what they were going for, but it doesn't look cool. It looks goofy. It looks silly. Yeah, it's this over stylized Rococo Baroque stuff that they threw into the sci-fi movie. So there's all that. And then there's all the politics. It's like, man, you're giving me stuff that I wasn't looking for from a Riddick movie, guys. Like it lays it on thick in this first act. What they reminded me of, I'm going to keep just naming things that their ships reminded me of. All yeah. right. So we got the maid from Spaceballs, but then the Argonaut from Lord of the Rings that guard the- um, Oh yeah, definitely. The giant stone statues at the edge of the river. Imagine if they just blasted off a little rockets on their feet at some point and be like, all right, it was cool when they were just standing there with their hands out <laughs> ominously, but now like they got rockets on their feet. That's less cool. You took it a step too far. Would have been nice for Sam and Frodo though, if they had flown those guys into Mordor and picked them up. Look, if they can't get a ride with the Eagles, they're not going to get a ride in the Argonauts, all right? It's a debate for another time, but- So, Keith David, our first three-peat appearance in the Blast Zone. 
How do we Welcome feel about Keith that? David, I think, you are now in the lead on the leaderboard of repeat visitors. Are we going to get him a, a fancy blazer or something to commemorate the? <laughs> yeah. We'd hand it to him. We'd be like, "Who the fuck are you?" But a I mean, jacket. Yeah, but we love Keith David. It's unfortunate that he keeps showing up in these bombs. Yeah, um, this is not his. This is not my favorite thing yet. Like he he holds it down in this. He's in the movie for what fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so like he cashed his check. I'm sure he probably filmed for three or four days. Whatever. Power yeah. to him. Yeah, kind of a sweet gig. Go in. Do a little accent. Play some you know. Dungeons and Dragons with Vin Diesel in between takes. Yeah, stir up some sympathy and then get killed off. I wish they had done him better on his death. Like he has to distract the soldiers to let his wife and his baby daughter get away. And he distracts his soldier and they go down this alley on this balcony. And then the soldier comes closer and he steps out and he's like facing his death very bravely. He goes, you know, I know I'm going to paradise when I die. Well, what about you? And this is the soldier who doesn't say anything and he just kills him. But there was like kind of like the balcony kept going behind him. I'm like, why did he step right. out towards the soldier and just sort of end it right there? He could have kept running, yeah. at least drawn the soldier further away from his wife and kid. Right. He had some moves he could have made, but <laughs> it seemed like he, he threw in the towel a little early. Yeah. I think the guy who kills him is the guy that Riddick then kills and takes the knife from, right? Same guy, same necromonger. Yeah. So that's the guy who, for no reason has a knife sticking out of his back. That's just how spooky <laughs> these guys are, that some of them got stabbed before in the back. By who? By a friend? By an enemy? We don't know. He just has a knife hanging out there and he doesn't give a shit because he's so big and strong and tough. Feels uh, like it'd but, be appropriate if it was you know, a friend because he got stabbed in the back. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, yeah, like that, that would could, be apropos. That would have been an interesting little bit of backstory. Who was this guy's friend who turned on him? But anyway, it's a convenient way since they all wear this identical gray armor, convenient way for Riddick to, to hook up with him later and go, hey, that's the knife in the back guy. That guy killed my friend. I need to kill him now. And as we said, everyone defers to Riddick, even a throne room packed to the gills with the enemy army is like, well, we better stand back and let Riddick do what he wants. And he kills the guy. <laughs> yeah, I guess that guy's not a back sleeper. He's more of a, a side or stomach sleeper, I would imagine. <laughs> He's a total stomach sleeper, yeah. You picture him in the barracks, face down with that knife sticking out. He rolls over. He's like, oh, fuck, ah, fuck. <laughs> Forgot, got the knife in my back. <laughs> but yeah, he seemed like a tough guy because he was walking around fighting. He basically cleared the planet. With a knife sticking out of his back, Riddick grabs the knife out of his back, sticks it in his front, kind of in the similar place, about the similar depth. The guy dies instantly right. from the same knife. It's just where you put it. I guess that's the thing. Riddick is just a little more accurate. That knife, that's a half gram heavy in the back. End. Oh man, that was a corny thing too. Why is the Lord Marshal, the head of this intergalactic crusade, asking Riddick how he likes the knife? How do you like <laughs> this knife you found in the back of my soldier that you just killed? Isn't your plan to convert all these people and or kill them? Like, why are you just having this weird verbal showdown with Riddick? It, it feels like a movie thing and it, it's not organic at all. Yeah, it's not grounded in anything. It's totally weird. And then Riddick, of course, has to be the super badass fighter because he grabs the thing. He does a sped up thing where he flips it around on the back and the front of his hand and spins it in a thousand circles and hands it back to him. His hand, which is perfectly still when this happens, by the way. <laughs> Just, yeah, it's almost like if there was a parody of movies like this, that little clip would not be any different than it is right. in this movie. One of the weirder moments. Yeah, but he's got to be the toughest and the best fighter the most i don't know it's yeah stupid as shit but and even when he's in jeopardy he's not really in jeopardy he's just cruising through and can walk out of there whenever he wants and he does walk out of there when he wants 
But first, he meets these oracles. Let's talk about a couple of things that we do like about this. Yes. I, I liked, so they go, oh, we better find out who he is. Put him in the room with our telepaths, these quasi-dead oracle seers who can read people's minds and memories. And those were kind of cool. We're getting really into the fantasy because these creatures come out of the wall and they're wrapped in these gauzy black silks and they're speaking. It's kind of a minority report thing, but much more sort of fantasy style. Did you find those guys fun? Yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch. It kind of reminded me of 300, which of course came after this movie when they have the, are they called the oracles as well? Yeah, I think those are your authentic Greek oracles. That's probably where the name comes yeah, from. Yeah, I got I got a similar vibe from them. But yeah, it was like a, kind of like a creepy little detail that I thought worked much better than when they tried a similar thing with the uh, like intercom telephone system with the people later on. But we'll get yeah. to that later. Yeah, same but, creatures come back later in a weird scene. In a very silly way. But no, they definitely worked here. I thought it was a fun way to get some exposition out quickly and it made sense within the the universe of the movie yeah as much as anything made sense then right. the, the lensers did you like the lensors those are the creepy little dudes with the scuba masks yes yeah they were they were appropriately creepy i would say <laughs> yeah again kind of dumb but a, a fun way to add some creep factor like the main fighting is over and the necro soldiers are going through town kind of cleaning up the stragglers and instead of bloodhounds or some kind of dogs they use these people that are creepy and hunched over and wearing blue lit scuba masks and have skull faces underneath who kind of sniff out people and it's just a way to create this dramatic wind up when they're going to kill the stragglers so instead of just walking over and going oh hey there's a soldier make sure he's dead they creep through alleys and then the lensers wind up and do these long kill him and they zap him and so it's like these moments of tension and you're wondering if your heroes are going to meet the same fate, but it's creepy. Some of them were former Cirque du Soleil performers so they could do like those body contortions and weird Uh, movements. That explains a lot. Yeah, they do. They do communicate a lot with their weird, creepy movement. They probably should have saved the lensers for after they give their recruitment pitch because they're like, look, it's pretty great to be a necromonger. Don't mind our weird little bloodhound people, you know, that we walk around on a leash. You probably won't be one of those. You might be. Probably not. You know, only a few people get to be those. Not very appealing. There's a lot of bad ways it could go for you. Carl Urban is in this movie. And why? I feel like (laughs) he's way overqualified for this role. He's he seems to be having fun. Him and Newton are like hamming it up. The two of them seem to be like in their own little movie, just having a blast. Yeah, they play husband and wife, these high-ranking soldier, Lord Vaco and Lady Vaco, and she's a political mover and shaker in the palace there, which is just part of this whole palace intrigue politics that maybe we didn't need, but they're like, we're going to have fun with it. And Carl Urban just wields his looks like it's a weapon, like he's covered up as all the soldiers are under these helmets that almost totally shroud their faces. And everyone in this throne room is now cowed to the Lord Marshal. Sorry, we're going to convert. And Riddick's still standing there. And our guy, Vaco, walks over to him and takes off his helmet and just kind of points his handsome face and spiky hair at Riddick and is like, Are you sure you want to mess with this? And I was like, Kind of a funny moment because he actually had nothing else but a little line about shouldn't you bow down? But it was kind of like his face was the weapon that he just deployed on Riddick. Kind of disappointing. We never get the big showdown between those two that I feel like the movie really owed us, you know? That's a good point. He would have been the satisfying guy to have face off, but no. Right. And in the third act, we get the big showdown with Confiori, who <laughs> must weigh 85 pounds, like soaking wet. We get that his power comes from the fact that he went to the underverse and he can move like little teleport action. But I want to see two big guys fight the two big bad boys, Riddick and Vako. No, you're right. That would have been cool. I have to mention Riddick gets one of his most corny action hero lines. He's in this room. Everyone else is bowed. Vako says, you got one chance to bow to the Lord Marshal. And Riddick goes, look, 
I'm not with everyone here. It's like... <laughs> Just to lose it in a way that is that a line from another movie? Is he quoting something else? It's, it's, that is a really funny line, actually. I don't know if it was supposed to be. And it kind of comes out extra New York, and it's just like very urban contemporary. This line in this fantasy sci-fi movie. Look, I'm not with everyone here. That's very. Funny. He is from. He was born in California. Oh, was he? So yeah, but he did. He put some Brooklyn style on that line. Yeah. And then so before we move on to the second section, we do have to mention that the mercenary that Riddick faces off with in the first little portion of the movie Tombs, we're kind of left wondering how he ends up. He yeah. locks him up and we do find out that Tombs survived and is now back on the hunt for Riddick. Yeah. And I know we mentioned in the synopsis, but Tombs is kind of a big player in this movie. I mean, he really is driving some of the action now with this next section. Yeah, he is sort of the pivot point. He is the bad guy on the other half of this movie. One half of this movie is a sci-fi fantasy. The other half is a gritty sci-fi crime story. And so he's the bad guy of the gritty crime story. And he's pretty good. He's got that 80s movie villain kind of nasty charm to him. I think he carries it kind of well. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's charming, but, you know, he's entertaining. He, he's engaging to watch. He's silly. He seems to know what movie he's in. Yeah. He's got weird facial hair, always a hallmark of a good, <laughs> goofy action movie villain. I don't know. I'm a fan of Tombs. I thought he added to the movie. And I thought the sections of the movie that he was in are the strongest. So maybe that's part of my bias. But yeah. I actually really like the next portion of the movie. Yeah. You want to tell us where it goes from here? So Tombs and the Mercs take Riddick to a prison planet called Crematoria, where the sunshine is so strong it melts rocks. While the Mercs and prison guards fight over Riddick's reward money, Riddick runs into the spunky kid from the first movie who has now grown up into a beautiful but deadly woman named Kira. Riddick and Kira race against the guards in the rising sun to reach an escape ship, but a group of Necros has tracked them down and attacks as they're trying to get away. The Necros take Kira prisoner and fly off, leaving Riddick for dead. But the Necromonger High Priest stays behind and reveals he was also once a Furian before being converted. He saves Riddick's life and kills himself. So this part feels like a sequel to Pitch Black, right? Absolutely. This is full on Pitch Black material. I mean, it's taking place on a prison planet. That's Riddick's whole thing. Even though the first one wasn't set on a prison planet, it was about a merc taking Riddick to prison. And that doesn't go the way they planned. But this is a shit. Now Riddick's going to actually be in prison. He drops quotes about like how he knows every prison in the galaxy so well and all its ins and outs. And like, okay, now he's back in his native environment. Let's see what he can do. Yeah, it was a cool little moment where he's running through the list of all the prisons in the galaxy. And he's like, well, you can't take me to this one because it's too far out of your way. So he knows even before they get there, which prison they're going to. And I think that was a more creative way of showing just how experienced Riddick is in the underworld without just having him beat up a bunch of dudes, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the fun stuff that we want to know about Riddick. If you like the character Riddick, you're like, oh, this is a convict with a heart of gold and he's such a badass because he survived all these unbelievably tough prisons. And so like, and this is the fun part. And as soon as he gets into this prison, he does all kind of fun stuff. Actually, it gets silly. You know what aerial silks are? You know that stuff that people do where they're like is yogurt it, it's, commercials? It's like a kind of like Pilates or yoga, right? It's like an it, exercise thing? Yeah, it's something in between acrobatic aerialism and a workout where you go and you learn to hang from a long silk and do routine routines on it and spin and twist yourself around and twirl. Anyway, for some reason, they're lowering him down into this godforsaken stone cage prison. And he does this whole acrobatic routine to get himself off the rope where he's like 
flipping and twisting with his toes pointed and his legs out. And it's pretty weird. It does feel like, what, what are you guys going for here? But it, it doesn't really make him look intimidating at all. It makes him look graceful, which is yeah. nice, I guess. Yeah, like a Cirque du Soleil kind of a dude. I don't know. I think they jumped the tracks there for a second. But then they got back. He does all kind of goofy stuff in this section. He kills a guy with a teacup just to show what a badass he is. I mean, first he tells him he's going to kill him with a teacup and then he does it. Yeah, that's, that's some Billy Jack shit. I'm going to take this teacup and I'm going to whop you. No. And then we got to talk about Kira. It's a little confusing because they changed her name and recast the role. So is it really supposed to be the same person? I think it is. But like, why the name change? Yeah. Why couldn't she be Jack still? That would have been fine. Because, yeah, she was Rihanna Griffith as Jack in Pitch Black. And now she's recast as Alexa Davalos, who, to be fair, is a better actress. And I'm all for the recasting in a situation like that. But the name change and the recasting just feels like you're moving too far away from the original. It felt unnecessary to me. Is Jack too much of just a regular ass name for this world that they've trying to create of high fantasy? Maybe that's the problem. No, I guess it was supposed to maybe signal her transformation that she is now a grown woman. She has taken on her true identity, but her whole character is kind of stuck halfway between a romantic character and a kid sister. She was a kid sister kind of character, right? She was the tag along kid who thought Riddick was super cool. And then she grew into a woman and tried to emulate Riddick's life by getting herself thrown in prison. And she's like, oh, it fucking sucks. Why did you make that seem cool? Because my life has sucked so far. And they never really pay off off the romance, which I think is to the movie's credit, kind of hint at it. And she maybe seems to be pursuing something, but Riddick doesn't act on it, which is good because she was like a little kid and Riddick was like 30 the last time they were together. So (laughs) they should not have a romance for the record. You are right. It is good. They should not be involved in a romance. And yet she fills the romantic role because there is no other one for the hero, except for that one Merc who gets a little sexy on Riddick for a minute. Well, Vin Diesel, the most irresistible of men. So of course, every <laughs> woman is going to want to throw themselves out of it. Yeah, that scene on the ship was weird. Really weird. Where she, she just kind of straddles him and is, is caressing him. I think she's trying to steal his knife, but you know, there's easier ways to go about it. You're probably going to wake up this famously like aware of his surroundings murderer if you straddle yeah. him. And she's sniffing him. There's weird stuff going on. And I believe that scene is only in the director's cut. Oh, so- yeah. For clarification's sake, Ian watched the theatrical cut and then the director's cut. I only watched the director's cut twice. I didn't even know how to find the theatrical cut. I don't have Showtime, I think you watched Yeah, it's on Showtime. So if you've listened to us talk about the movie, I'll try to point out a few places where it's not that different. It's a 15 minutes different or something. And there's a few pieces that are not in the theatrical because it's shorter. But we'll try to point that out. There were some things. It's weird when you see what the director thought was better and what he thought was worse. Yeah, there's like a scene in the first section where the necromongers chant like threshold, like they're at a sporting event. <laughs> like you guys put that back in? I don't know. It feels like yeah. you shouldn't. It doesn't need to be in there. <laughs> yeah, some of the world building is definitely different. The main thing that's different that's in the director's cut, they build up the prophecy story more. So, you know, Riddick doesn't uh, know he's a Furian and these people start to sort of clue him in and he actually tells them, I don't give a shit where I'm from. I'm not about this shit. But anyway, this Furian lady comes to him in these repeated visions, trying to tell him that he has a bigger role to play in his destiny is to save the universe. And the director put that in, but the studio took that out. It's not in the theatrical at all. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm not fucking with these prophecies. I feel (laughs) like they take away from the movie. I, I feel like prophecies are very tricky to do well. Yeah. They rarely are value adds, in my opinion. And like, even his eyes now are a prophecy thing, you know? Oh, yeah. They weren't just a thing he did to himself to survive the environment. 
that was a cool little character moment. Cause you're like, wow, this guy yeah. must've been through some shit. If he was willing to do that to his eyes, eyes yeah. just to have a slightly better chance at surviving. And he traded it for a pack of cigarettes or something. He said in the first one, right. Packs of cools or something, 12 packs of cools. But now it's part of a fucking prophecy. And I don't know. I'd rather have characters do things because of choices they have to make. That's more interesting. You know, that's development. <laughs> you're learning more about the character and who they are as a person, not just what was foretold. You know, yeah. can we just strike the word foretold for movies from now on? Can we just get rid of it. <laughs> If you put yeah. that in your script, like the fucking screenwriting software, you should just yell at you. Just flag that right away. Anyway, that's my rant about prophecies. Anyway, excited for Dune in October. We are. We are granting Dune a lot of leeway because it's, I don't know, it's one of the originators of a lot of these tropes. Yeah. Prophecies weren't such a, a fucking well-trodden ground when Dune first came out. So they get a little bit of a pass. And also to just step up as a Dune fanboy, it handles it in a pretty sophisticated way. It actually talks about how prophecies are a kind of poisonous thing that passes through societies and the characters in that movie manipulate prophecies to try to achieve political ends. And it talks about how belief in prophecies leads to great disaster and bloodshed. That's kind of the upshot of the Dune right. story where this is just like classic. We need a hero and it is foretold that someone will save us and you are the chosen one. Hey, I'm like two thirds of the way through Dune. Longtime listeners will re- recall that I had no Dune experience when we recorded the the podcast on That's the David right. Lynch version. Started cold. So I've been reading it, doing my homework in advance of the Chalamet version. So Ah, I'm excited. I'll I'll be able to talk at length about these type of themes in our bonus episode, which I'm sure we'll do. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Provided Dune actually comes out when they said it did because a bunch of things got pushed back today. Come on. We need that Dune. We need it. Speaking of classic sci-fi foibles, besides cheap unearned prophecies, the necromancers all wear this heavy, intimidating armor. They look really scary. They're covered in these plates of gray steel and it looks very intimidating. (laughs) And it is absolutely useless. Riddick instantly kills them over and over. He's armed with these dinky little daggers that are the size of his thumb and he just goes through just (laughs) stabbing them and they just die like flies. Is this armor made of memory foam? You know, they (laughs) developed plate armor to defend against fucking broadswords and you mean to tell me this little first of all, if Riddick had a teacup when he was fighting the necromongers, he probably would have killed them with that shit too. Sure. Just wear less armor then so you're faster if your armor's totally useless. Fuck do you need it for? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. They just all got stabbed in the gut and they're like, oh, why did I even get dressed? I'm glad you have your battle axe that is the size of a fucking stop sign, but you can't (laughs) move because everything you're wearing and holding weighs 114 pounds and is useless anyway. Also, Vako has a sweet Billy Ray Cyrus space mullet. So oh, yeah. I don't know what kind of special protection that's giving him, but I'm, I'm grateful it's there. Man, he is gelled up on the top. Does he have a rat tail in the back? It kind of comes together. He's got back. like several rat tails. He's got like three of them. <laughs> it is a rat tail mullet, which is, oh, just peak If perfection. he was not so innately handsome, that would be just a revulsive haircut on anybody else. But it's- <laughs> He's trying his hardest to not be handsome and still failing somehow. Oh man. But yeah, this prison section's fun, right? The CGI on the little dog dudes is not great. The scrunts, I think that they were the scrunts, right? They came yeah. back from a lady in the water. Yeah, if only the shit, I already forgot the name of the, the heroes in, in Narf. The Water. I guess Kira was a Narf. And oh, wow, it checks out. Guy. She was kind of redheaded, right? Was she? I don't know. It was dark in know. that cave. I like Alexa Davalos, though. She's really good in the show, The Man in the High Castle, if you've ever oh, okay. seen that. But she's yeah. in other stuff, I'm sure. But yeah, she's not great in this movie. I feel like it's not playing to her strengths. She's trying to play like unhinged, loose cannon type character. Yeah. And sometimes it comes off just a little try hardy. And I hate to use that phrase, but like she's acting with a capital A at times. 
Yeah, the whole movie is because only Vin gets to be trying hard, but trying hard under the most ice cold veneer where she right. has to be the excitable killer and show him up. It's it's a little tiresome at times, but yeah, we have fun in the section. Like we said, it gets back to alien style. There's these grizzled guards that you, know, you figure like everyone's trying to grift each other. This group of mercs lands and they're negotiating for what's the bounty on Riddick's head and how are we going to get it paid and how do we calculate it? And they're all planning to stab each other in the back and they do and that's fun yeah some nice low stakes real down-to-earth sci-fi shit like i said the sci-fi elements here are superfluous in the sense that you could place this movie in the real world Mm -hmm. just change a few little things and it would still work right So yeah, I mean, it's just good storytelling in this part, but it does feel like a completely different movie. Another thing to praise about this section of the movie is they dove right into the heart of the premise and Riddick's hook is that he sees in the dark because he had his eyes worked on Mm -hmm. and he wears goggles the rest of the time. So he hates the sun. He does not like it when people even turn lights on. And ironic, they send him to a planet with the brightest sun in the universe. So like, this is a fun thing. This is Riddick versus the sun. Like what could be a bigger enemy for him? Right. I just picture him stabbing the sun with a tiny dagger (laughs) and it sounds like, ah, winking out. (laughs) Did you find, this is like a weird little aside, but I feel like the goggles are too small. Like they're too close to his nose so they look kind of silly they look okay what ruins them is when light shines on him and you see where his eyes are in the goggles because they're not in the center and they're like out at the edges and it's yeah it looks bad (laughs) they should have cgi'd that because you don't notice it necessarily they're kind of weird bug eye goggles but then there's a couple scenes where you get a glimpse and you're like whoa his eyes are in the corners of those goggles not in the middle and it looks dopey then so they they have this big race against the sun Uh to get to the one ship on the planet and Diesel, or I'm sorry, Riddick, looks at all his little followers and goes, there's going to be one speed, mine. And then I thought it would have been nice if when they cut back to him, he's sitting in like the Challenger from Fast and the Furious, <laughs> like the muscle car, just, just like speeds off. But no, he just runs around on his feet like an idiot. His skill in this movie, yeah, is definitely like jumping over rocks because he's running and jumping, leaping over rocks in the intro scene when he's on the ice. He's a parkour too. dude. He's definitely a parkour dude. He runs from the sun a quarter mile at a time. So what, what else from the section did we have to uh, discuss? There's so many dumb things. Oh, I did like when Kira and, and Riddick are having a conversation in the prison and she makes a line about not caring if she lives or dies. And then literally like three minutes later, she's like, hey, Riddick, remember <laughs> what I said about not caring if I lived or died? I'm like, yeah, we all remember that. It was 45 <laughs> seconds ago. What the fuck are you talking about? Some of the dialogue is not the best. They couldn't think of a better way to get that across. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, remember when I said that thing? There's better ways to allude to past statements than just repeating (laughs) them. In an action movie, you always have to do callbacks and reversals. So they felt obligated. Well, it turns out she does want to live. And stay tuned because some bad news on that front. Yeah. All right. right. Take us home, Ian. So back on Helion Prime, Riddick sneaks into the throne room of the Lord Marshal's flagship and confronts him. The Marshal taunts Riddick by showing that he's converted Kira to a necromonger. Riddick fights the Marshal one-on-one, but he's losing due to the Marshal's supernatural powers. Kira steps in and saves Riddick by stabbing the Marshal who then knocks her into a spike that impales her. At this point, the ambitious necromonger Vako tries to use this moment to kill the wounded marshal and claim the throne for himself. The marshal dodges Vako's blow and runs right into the clutches of Riddick, who stabs him right through the brain. Kira then dies in Riddick's arms. The necros kneel before Riddick because by law, he is their new leader. Flawless. Sorry. I was having my Tandui Newton moment. So I have a story about this section of the movie. Okay, tell Um, me. I hated this movie for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah, I really did. The reason is a 
chunk of the fight in the throne room between the Marshal and Vako and Riddick played on a loop in the TV department at Circuit City, where I worked for years. Oh, wow. All day, every day as some kind of showcase for, I think maybe it was for DVDs or whatever, but just uh-huh. to show off the TVs. And so I had to watch that scene 25 times a day. That's wild. So you need <laughs> every day for torture years. for you. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Shout out to past guest, regular Mike, who worked at Circuit City with me. I'm sure he recalls this as well because we both worked in the TV department. <laughs> but yeah, for those of you younger listeners, Circuit City is just Best Buy with red shirts instead of blue, um, but it's gone now. So yeah, I, I wonder if any listeners either shopped at or worked at an electronic store at the time this movie came out. Let me know if this was just a Circuit City thing or if it happened to you guys too, because I hated this movie just because of that. The part where Riddick's getting punched and pummeled around and tossed yeah, around. Yeah, like it's, a, it's that scene where the Lord Marshal is doing like the little teleportation fighting. Yeah. And actually beating up Riddick. So I was like, oh, this movie, Vin Diesel gets his ass kicked. Come to find out that's the only time in the movie anyone even lands a blow on him. Yeah. And he's kind of getting stumbled around, but I don't know. Is he really in threat? I guess he is because Kira wouldn't have had to save him if he wasn't right on the verge of being killed. But the movie's done such a poor job of setting Riddick as ever being vulnerable that you just, you kind of shrug your shoulders anytime he's threatened at all. Yeah. He's presented as so invulnerable. You don't really worry. And you know, the moment you see that Kira is a necromonger and Lord Marshall is gloating about it, you know that she's not really brainwashed and she's going to overcome her conditioning and help him. Like there was no reason to think, oh boy, she's gone over to the other side. That's the end of that story. This is also the section that has the the necromonger telephone game, like the Nextel two-way. Yes. <laughs> what a weird future world. Like these guys are so have spaceships and yet inside the ships, Faco and his wife played by Tendiwe Newton. They're plotting this palace intrigue the whole time. They're waiting for the right moment to strike so Vako can do away with the Lord Marshal and become Lord Marshal himself. And so they have to have a phone call to plan their next move. And she has to tell him that she saw Riddick sneak on board the ships and they've got to plan how to handle it. And so they pull a couple sarcophaguses out of the wall. Wherever they are, they're not nearby <laughs> enough to meet up. And right. Place a call. So these giant stone sarcophaguses slide out of the wall. These bald corpses are lying in front of them and doing this wordless kind of writhing and moaning and convulsing. And these chalices of black blood are vibrating to show that you have Wi-Fi signals so they can talk to each other. (laughs) Two of them are having a conversation this way, but like with, with a corpse guy in their face. Like, that's what they're talking into. Like, it's an old-fashioned phone. Oh, please talk into the corpse so I can hear you. They should have to whisper in his ear and then put their ear up to his lips because they can't talk very loud because they're dead. It's almost that. And if anyone doesn't believe me, you have to watch this movie because (laughs) the scene is weird. It takes a while. First, you're like, oh, they're having a conversation. And you realize how much time they're spending leaning into the corpses to communicate. And then at the end of it, Tandiwe Newton signs off, like, be safe, my lord. And she wants to sort of blow him a kiss as she signs off the call. So she leans over and kisses the corpse on the lips. Did I see that? Did that actually happen? You no, know, that happened. And then weirdly, the corpse on Vako's end just starts making out with him because, <laughs> you know, he had to really convey her love for him. It's his job to, to translate. That. He's merely a vessel. He's merely a conduit. No, <laughs> she does She does kiss the corpse on the lips and I think it's very the, strange. And then I think Vako on the other end, you're like, wait a minute, is he going to have to receive that kiss by leaning over and planting his <laughs> lips on the corpse? And he like hesitates for a second and then he hangs up and the sarcophagus 
slides it to the wall. So it was almost like he decided, no, I'm not going to He thought about it, yeah. That. The long distance relationship implications of these things is just monstrous. Imagine phone sex. I don't want to know how that would even go down, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's a real scene in this movie, this $120 million movie. They're just talking to a bunch of dead bodies as phones. Yeah. I mean, just talking about it here, I actually don't believe it happened. After we sign off, right? I'm going to have to go and watch is this it again, a fever? Cause... Is this a Healy and his dad moment? Did we just both have a fever dream that this happened? Yeah. No, it's, it's too in weird. there. I, I wrote it down so we could talk about it. I still don't believe it. <laughs> this section has a lot of unintentional humor. You made a note about when the Lord Marshal is pulling Riddick's soul out, but Riddick's soul like makes a little face at him. I think that's <laughs> one of the most unintentionally hilarious scenes in a movie I've seen yeah, in a long really time. funny. Can we promise to find that picture and put it in the show notes? I will try my hardest. I'm <laughs> uh, writing this down. Show notes, Riddick. <laughs> Riddick's angry soul. Because we didn't mention that the secret power of the Lord Marshall is because he's been to the gates of the Underverse, where the mm-hmm. Underpants gnomes come from, he right. has been granted the supernatural power, both to leave his own body and do this teleporting around in a slinky ghost way, and also just to yank the souls out of people's bodies, killing them instantly, like some phantoms that we met a few episodes ago. Ooh, not ghosts. The, oh, wait, they are ghosts. Yeah, Spoiler. phantoms are ghosts, I think, was the secret. Sorry, we spoiled Final yeah. Fantasy, the spirits within for you. But the spirits were ghosts and the phantoms were spirits by the transitive property the ghosts are also phantom okay got it oh. but anyway those ghost phantom spirit aliens they killed you by yanking your soul out of you and gosh darn it if the lord marshall doesn't do the exact same thing also shang sung for mortal Kombat. some shades of him in that a little, little boop got your soul thing going on but stealing your soul kind of a tried and true like oh it's a fate worse than death but i don't know seems better than being a necromonger. At least it's fast. The guy who did get his soul yanked, he didn't seem to be in pain. He was scared for a minute before he died. But anyway, Riddick is too tough. You can't just yank his soul out of his body. So Lord Marshall's like pulling on it. But the head and yeah, Riddick is like gritting his jaw. Give me your soul. And Riddick, this is where the studio had to save the PG. This was PG-13, right? Yeah. The director's cut's unrated, but the theatrical cut was PG-13. So in the director's cut, Riddick says, fuck you to the Lord Marshall. But in the theaters, we heard him say, never. Fuck you works a lot better in that scene. More F-bombs in this movie wouldn't have hurt. No. There's not a lot of $120 million R-rated movies. It's just not a thing that happens. No. Once you went fantasy, you got to get some young teens into this theater. So Riddick becomes the king of the necromongers, which feels weird, right? That's a weird place to end. It is weird. It's jarring. But to me, I'm like, that was the only thing to me that was epic about this movie. It was a very Conan type of a moment, right? He's lounging mm-hmm. on this throne and he suddenly, he doesn't even realize he's on the throne. He's mourning the death of Kira. Camera pulls back. All of a sudden the soldiers all start kneeling at his feet and he realizes that he's the new king. And I don't know, that felt kind of epic to me. I'm like, oh yeah, this is like classic fantasy novel stuff. The rogue becomes the king. Yeah, it would have been nice if they explored that more in a sequel, but Riddick, the movie, I have not seen it actually, but apparently it kind of retcons that a little bit or it doesn't really address it as much. Of course, they started over with some other idea they had that they thought was cooler at the time. It's probably too expensive to get all these big name actors back and build all the sets again. Riddick, the third movie, is just a much smaller movie, so they probably just couldn't afford to continue the Necromonger storyline. Oh, that makes sense. Because, you know, this movie lost a ton of money or we wouldn't be talking about it. So this is one case where I respected the director because in the director's cut, the movie ends pretty abruptly. Riddick looks around, sees what he's done, killed the king. He sees them start to kneel and he repeats the line that they've told him, you keep what you kill, as he realizes, oh shit, I'm the king now. And it just kind of ends there, which is fun. In the theatrical I guess the studio didn't trust the audience to get that, so they dummied it up with... First, they have Vaco say the line instead, which doesn't... 
doesn't help anything. You no. keep what you kill. It's just, oh, he's teaching Riddick because Riddick doesn't know what's going on. And then Dame Judy, as the elemental Arion, who's been hiding in the wings the whole time, comes back in to close it with some voiceover. And it's totally dumb. She goes, what are the odds? This dark army at the feet of a lone outlaw and the fate of the rest of the universe? I love your Judy Dench impression. <laughs> it's probably just turning into 10 different accents. It's, it sounds like Meryl Streep's Julia Childs a little bit, which is not a bad thing. What the fuck was Judy Dench doing in this movie anyway? Did she serve a purpose? Really? She was set dressing. She made it classier. She gave him a nice voice to do voiceover. The character doesn't make sense. Did you ever figure out whose side she was on? I mean, she was the one who brought Riddick there because she was trying to save the universe. But then she's kind of just hanging out with the Lord Marshal half the time. She's a very passive observer of all this stuff going on. She's really just there to say some vaguely fantastical lines once in a while. Just, oh, pity. I don't know. Give us some exposition, add some perspective. I guess it's like a sci-fi trope that they tried to work in. The elevated intellectual race that watches everyone else. So. Sure, like the Bene Gesserit or the elves. The yeah. Jedi. Yeah. But like that. you said, she does the Galadriel voiceover beginning thing, but then Galadriel comes back and has a real impact on the story of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Galadriel you know? is right in the thick of it. I think what happened here is, and, and when I say I think, I mean, I know because I researched it, but Vin Diesel just really wanted Judy Dench in his movie. Yeah. He even went so far as telling her he wouldn't begin casting the rest of the movie until she agreed to take the role. It's like, this role is so unimportant. Who fucking cares? Can yeah. anyone do this? So he was like guilt tripping her into give me an answer. Yeah. And uh, so she wrote in her autobiography titled, and furthermore, what a British ass name for an autobiography, <laughs> by the way. Um, she never really understood what was going on in the movie, but she had fun making it and thought the sets were great, which is just adorable. Also, there was rumors that Vin Diesel got her into Dungeons and Dragons on the set of the movie, taught her how to play. And apparently she may have dungeon mastered for her uh, grandkids. Oh, well, that's Isn't like that nice? a really nice story. Yeah. See, that's where this movie has a wholesome side. If you see it as a Vin Diesel adventure, like personally his adventure making the movie and living out this fantasy for himself, it makes a lot more sense and it's more charming and heartwarming. Yeah. He's clearly like a big dork in a jock's body. He loves fantasy. He loves sci-fi. Just look at the kind of the roles he's taken. I mean, he's always going to do the Fast and the Furious movies and he takes them entirely too seriously. But then he's in movies like Bloodshot, which is this weird sci-fi action movie he made. The Guardians of the Galaxy thing is just a voice role, but still he's in the comic book world. I think if he had his druthers, he would be doing these kind of, or The Last Witch Hunter was another one too. He loves these kind of high fantasy, hard sci-fi, obscure properties. And I just don't think audiences go there with him. He seems to be, this feels mean, but I feel like audiences <laughs> go to see his movies for the franchise and not for him at this point, but he hasn't quite caught on to that. So he oh, keeps trying to launch these new franchises and they all keep falling hard on their face, but then he can go back to the Fast and the Furious movies and those make a ton of money. So he's like, why can't I do this with my little Bloodshot movie? I'm like, well, because we don't know Bloodshot. You know, we know Dominic Toretto. We know Triple X. We know Riddick. Right. So I don't know. I do kind of feel bad for him in that sense. You think his launching days are behind him and he's got to just ride out what he's got in the... I kind of do. Yeah. I don't think he has that draw anymore. If he ever did. If he runs into a good script, it could still happen for him. 
but yeah, it gets less and less likely as you get older. Um, He's a good anchor for an ensemble. I enjoy him in the Fast and the Furious movies, although he does less and less acting as they go on. He's got a very interesting career. I feel like there will be books written about him when he's done. Yeah, I kind of admire him for deciding to just make his own path. Sounds a little bit too trite to describe what he did, but he just decided to live out a Hollywood career the way he wanted to. And he actually, through Force of Will, made a lot of stuff happen the way he wanted to. He got to do a lot of things that he wanted. One of them was this movie, which is goofy and weird, but what can you say? If I could have come up with a kooky sci-fi idea and got the budget for it, would I not have done the similar thing? Yeah, I think he's capable of good stuff. He he can act. I don't think the criticism that he's a bad actor is always accurate. I just think the roles he picks for himself don't challenge him all the time. But I like him in Boiler Room. And even when I went back and watched that first The Fast and the Furious, I was surprised at how much acting he's doing in it because I think part of it is he wasn't able to skate by yet. He wasn't a big enough name. He still had to try. He still had to, you know, sell himself to get his next role. And I think he's definitely capable of good stuff when that's the case. He surprises you. I haven't seen that much of him, but in this movie, he's more in that action hero mold. And the job of the action hero in in this archetype of movies is to be strong and silent, except when he has a pithy line to deliver that's a punchline kind of gotcha line. And so that's what a lot of his stuff is. But yet he brings a little more, like he obviously brings more acting than an Arnold or sometimes even than a Stallone brought to those roles. And it, it grabs you. So there's little moments, right? When you think the movie is too dumb, you go, oh, that was funny the way he said that and kind of keeps the balloon up in the air a little longer. I think Stallone is a better actor than him overall. But I think if you compare like Riddick to Cobra, yeah, I'd say like He's doing better in this than Stallone does in Cobra. Yeah. It's just, you got to look at the roles like Stallone in First Blood. Yeah. That's better than anything Diesel's ever done, but it's just how he plays these type of action hero stoic roles. So this movie came out, opened with $24.3 million domestic. Why do you think this movie flopped so hard? Do you think they just overestimated the audience for the Pitch Black movie? Do you think it had something to do with maybe that Harry Potter movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, coming out the week before? What's your take on why this movie failed so hard? It was second place to Harry Potter. Azkaban was a cool movie. Actually, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan where I know it, but that movie stood out to me as having some edge to it, as being yeah, the first Yeah, that, that feels like the, the point in time where the Harry Potter movies stopped being kids' movies yeah, and started stop, being fantasy movies for everyone. Stop being cute and started to have some edge. Oh, and Alfonso Cuaron directed that, who is a very like adult director. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, behind Roma and Children of Men and Gravity. So that makes sense that that movie kind of stands out to us as oh, yeah. a good example. So that, that probably stole a good portion of this movie's audience. So to be second place to a movie that heavyweight, with what's a sequel to a successful low-budget indie, this was like, we got an indie cult hit, let's go bigger. But you don't look at that and go, oh, the studio failed to open Iron Man 2. This is Riddick 2. This does not have those expectations. So what did it do after that? Did it actually kind of fall flat? Dropped not- to sixth place in its second week. So uh, after that first week, it was pretty much dead in the water. In Pitch Black, it's important to note too, wasn't really a hit in theaters. It became a hit after the fact on home video. It barely doubled its budget when it was in theaters. And then people found it through word of mouth after the fact, and it did good business. But, you know, if people wouldn't go see the original in theaters, you're going to triple the budget or quadruple the budget. No, actually, how do you say six times? Sextuple? If you sextupled the budget from 23 million to 120 million, it, it just feels like hubris at that point. Yeah. Like, where are you getting these numbers from, man? I don't care how many fucking DVDs it sold. DVDs are not theater tickets. It's a whole nother ball game. Yeah. My theory is that they just got ahead of themselves. And this is me doing a lot of speculating, but we talked about Vin Diesel is known for his ego and the director seemed to have gone along with him on a similar journey that they both went, oh, 
we did something right. The people want us. They want your stories. They want my face. And we have carte blanche, as you might say, a blank check to do whatever we want. But that's not what the audience told them. What the audience told them is you overperformed. You did a low budget movie and it made its money back and it got more popular on video. And they just tried to cash a check that was way too big. Right. That's like they got a check for 50 bucks and tried to buy a car with it. Yeah. But it's funny you mentioned that because Diesel and Tui kind of seem to be kindred spirits in a way. They've got this fruitful a collaborative relationship now because they made Pitch Black together. So then David Tui's kind of an interesting guy. He'd been around Hollywood for a long time as a writer. He'd written some good stuff. He wrote The Fugitive, the yeah. Harrison Ford movie, one of my faves. That's a good credit. Yeah. Yeah. You want that on your resume, you can probably find work for a while. But he's also written some movies that we could cover if we wanted to, like G.I. Jane. Okay. Terminal Velocity. Very right. bad movie. Waterworld, one of the most famous bombs ever. It was a David Tui screenplay. Oh, shit. That could sink your career. Like, you put that in The Fugitive on other sides of the scale, and now all of a sudden things are not mm -hmm. so much on your favor. Whatever goodwill you got from The Fugitive, yeah, <laughs> you're spending it fast. So then Pitch Black comes out, which he wrote and directed. And then he wrote and directed a little movie called Below, which I actually really enjoy. It's a little a submarine horror movie, like Ghosts on a Submarine. Oh, spooky. Yeah, not bad. I think I'm remembering correctly. Zach Galifianakis had that little supporting role in there, one of his earliest movie roles. That sounds kooky and fun. It's like the comedic relief in that one. So he makes that in between Pitch Black and Chronicle. Then he directs A Perfect Getaway after Chronicles of Riddick, which was a really little movie because he probably couldn't get a big budget at that point in his career. But it's honestly pretty good. It's a little thriller. It's got a decent cast. One of those, like, we go on vacation, but getting over our head. Kind of like Deliverance, but. Okay, yeah. And that wasn't a huge success, but then they do Riddick in 2014. Uh, $40 million budget. $38 million, rather. They cut his budget by quite a bit from Chronicles to this one, but ended up making $100 million. So maybe that's like the top end of what people will pay <laughs> to see these Riddick movies. Is like right in the $100 million or just above range. Yeah, and that's it, just much better targeted, it seems. Yeah, make a smaller movie. Yeah. You can rope in about the same audience, but, you know, leave yourself room to make money off of it. And him and Diesel are apparently going to make Riddick 4 Furia. It's been announced for a while. There's been no real news on it in a little bit. Okay. Last I heard, 2023 was the targeted shooting date. Vin Diesel's not a young man anymore, though. Like, how many more Riddick movies does he have in him? Yeah, I wonder if this is time to pass the torch to a young Indiana Jones kind of thing. It'd be cool if that's what the movie was. I don't see Vin Diesel passing the no, torch. No, I don't see it either. <laughs> he said that, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Part of this movie's legacy is that they, it had a very good video game tie-in. Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay was released right around the time this movie was, and that's still considered a really good video game, kind of an underrated classic of first-person stealth action games where you play Riddick trying to escape the prison butcher bay sounds like a great tie-in and a good way to use the vip in a game yeah it's actually a lot of fun so this is some imdb trivia shit oh keith david was on set for 12 days i found that oh, in my notes go, yeah. so we estimated kind of correctly but not that low not that low so this is the list of people that were considered to direct. And I don't know if this was just like names Vin Diesel wrote on a piece of paper in crayon. They've got David Cronenberg, Guillermo del Toro, Alex Proyas, John Landis, and Peter Jackson. That feels like Vin Diesel's wish list, yeah. right? And they're like, you can get David Tui again and you'll be fucking happy about it. And he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was thinking too big for his bridges. David Cronenberg? Kiss my ass. <laughs> this is 2004. He's like, what, a couple years out from making a history of violence? He's not directing Chronicles 
levels of Riddick. Yeah, nobody is. I mean, I wonder what studio would have actually paired like a serious name, like any of these guys, what that movie I mean, would have been. Yeah. I, Maybe I they would have shaped it into a real quality movie. They would have had to take in a lot of control and hack the script. I don't think at this point in his career, like Del Toro was necessarily above doing a movie like this. Certainly not of this scale. I don't think he'd had a budget this big at this point in his career. I can't remember when Hellboy 2 came out. It might have been right around this time. Well, Hellboy came out in 2004. So Hellboy doesn't have a $120 million budget. I think it's like in the $75, $80 million range. So Del Toro was probably somebody they could realistically get at this point in his career. But that's a very different movie with him at the helm. Yeah, totally. Probably a much weirder, but maybe in a good way. I don't know. I'm a big Del Toro fan. Yeah, me too. He's great. He would have stripped out the the bland cheese and put something very spicy in there. And he does a great job with high fantasy in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Probably one of my top five comic book movies ever. You guys haven't watched that in a long time. So Diesel's career, he had declined to return to Too Fast, Too Furious to be in this movie instead. But then he made A Man Apart in 2003, a critical commercial failure. It's one of those, like, my family got murdered, now I'm real mad movies about a guy with a violent past who has to go back to his old ways. You know. You know. I know how that is. Yeah, you get it. And then after that, he went on my most hated genre of film, which is like, a man is taking care of children. What? Can you imagine? That sounds hilarious. Um, Why would a man take care of children? The humor. (laughs) That was the pacifier. It made money, but critics hated it. He made a movie where he actually had to act, though, after that. He made Find Me Guilty, Mm. which got really good reviews, but bombed horribly. I'm not even sure if it really got released though oh you know it might have been one of those ones played in like 170 theaters and then straight to video and then straight to video but it's good if you want to see vin diesel actually act it is not a bad movie and then he was like all right it's probably time to get back in the cockpit of a nissan super or whatever it was uh-huh. nissan skyline oh god you can't air that people heard me <laughs> you say can't mix the toyotas and your nissans no i'll be flayed <laughs> in the streets so yeah he was like i gotta pop up at the end of tokyo drift in a little cameo role and he's been dom toretto ever since he's probably at least an eight figure millionaire many times over if not a nine-figure millionaire by now and he just uses his hollywood cachet now to make weird little movies like the last witch hunter and bloodshot which both bombed so take your pick we got vin diesel movies to choose from and he's gotten into edm now this is interesting we're gonna have to put this in the show notes too yeah you Um, guys gotta listen to the vin diesel songs he's got two songs up on spotify youtube they're Feel like I do and days are gone. He's not under a pseudonym. It's just Vin Diesel it's right him, there on Spotify. Like, yeah, he's not. He doesn't have a fake name. There's just two songs. It's just two songs. I don't think he has any intention of releasing an album because he released these a while ago. He's not the least musically talented person of all time, though, right? Yeah. At first, you're like, oh, hey, Vin Diesel's doing EDM stuff. I'm like, oh, interesting. He's like a DJ. He's making some instrumental tracks, house music or something. And then I nope. put it on. I'm like, wait, somebody's singing this. And I'm like, wait a minute. Vin Diesel is singing in this Vin Diesel song. That's crazy. He's no Jeremy Renner, so his singing voice isn't great, but he kind of understands like song structure. Yeah, like the songs have nice musical hooks. It's very approachable pop EDM songwriting hooks. The music is pleasant. There's none of the Vin Diesel dark edge to it. This is happy, friendly EDM pop, like with catchy melodies, and he kind of pulls it off. Like The guy has some talent for this. I don't know anything about his story. Does he have a friend who he does this with, or how much is this Vin Diesel's secret passion, and he produced these tracks himself? And I have no idea but take a listen let us know what you think if you guys want to know what i think they sound like if imagine dragons released a single like the way you used to get cd singles when there would be a song and then there'd be like a remix of the song it sounds like the remix that would be on the cd single of an imagine dragon song that's an elaborate analogy but i like it i know i walked a mile for that one but i feel strongly about it ian what are your final thoughts on chronicles of riddick anything you wanted to say before we sign off 
this movie is just okay. It's kind of fun. I think that it works as a, I think, let me say this in one stretch. I think this movie works as a kid's movie, except the kid is Vin Diesel. And so- <laughs> That's very apt. Yeah, I like that. You have to accept his point of view. This is the shit he likes. And if you get into it and pick up some of his enthusiasm for how fun it is for him to have these things in this movie and create the legends and the lore and then fight his way through this whole universe that he's created, then you can have- fun with him. Don't go into it wanting it to be your idea of what a sci-fi movie should be because it's not your movie. It's Finn's movie. But if you're okay with that, you can have fun. Well said, Ian. Thank you so much. My closing <laughs> thoughts, as usual, are less eloquent than Ian's, but this movie's kind of cool. I don't know. It's silly. It's goofy. It takes itself too seriously. It tries to do too much. There's too much exposition, too much world building that doesn't go anywhere. All that being said, though, it's fun. There's some good fight scenes, some good action scenes, some hilarious one-liners, some real great unintentional comedy. You could do a lot worse if you like this type of movie. And keep in mind, like Ian said, you're just along for the ride. This is Vin's <laughs> show. But yeah, that's Chronicles of Riddick, man. I was pleasantly surprised after my Circuit City mishap with this film to find out that it is not as bad as I expected. That says a lot, that it brought you all the way back from Circuit City Hell to, hey, this is kind of fun. That's a good achievement. Finn can be proud. Absolutely. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, follow, other words that mean the same thing. You can find us on Twitter. We're Blast Zone Pod. You can shoot us an email, blastzonepod at gmail.com. We're going to be doing a mailbag episode, so send us any questions you have. You can DM us on Twitter. You can ask it to us on the timeline. You can email us whatever you want to do and we will see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone the blast zone